Welcome to Public Power Underground, Northwest Public Power's premier weekly infotainment program that covers Northwest public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. This is season three, episode three, Fish Risk. It's the third season, a season of sustainable new normals. Our enthusiasm for electricity is incredibly sustainable and normal and we're looking for electric utility enthusiasts so go ahead and pass this episode along to any friends like us to keep this show going but remember it's work to watch so if you've been watching this on the weekends please cut it out working all weekend is not sustainable we need you to catch up on the mondays okay we want you to be sustainable we're trying to new normal that's sustainable you're already working at home all day you need to cut out the listening to this on the weekend do it during the week Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. Your power's the subject of public power news. Roll on, enthusiasts, roll on. On today's show, we've got Aaron back to get an update on Northwest Public Power Markets, or Northwest Power Markets on Aaron Reports. Special correspondent Matt Shretnik stops by to talk about submarine supergrids. We're talking with uh, BPA's director of Fish and Wildlife Program, Crystal Ball. And as always, we're going to cover more public power and public power adjacent news. I am the self-assigned creative director of Public Power Underground and the manager of the power department for Klatskin IPUD, Paul Dockery. This is Luigi Gille, the data specialist for Klatskin IPUD and today's producer for Public Power Underground. I am so excited to have somebody else doing the live production, Luigi. Thank you so much for joining us. Give yourself some sound bites. This is my hard drive, and it only makes sense to put things in there that are useful, really useful. Love it. Love it, Luigi. Get that uh, mental palace, the mind palace free of clutter. Good job. Hi, and I am Betsy Bridge. I'm a former public power attorney, full-time parent of two, and the executive producer of Public Power Underground. I really love that you've taken on. You've now described yourself as an executive producer of Public Power Underground. You're getting the vibe? You like the vibe so far, Betsy? Yeah, I think, I li- I think I'm getting the vibe. Luigi, can I get an attorney from Fear and Loathing providing outstanding legal advice and emotional support to his client? As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Mm-hmm. And you'll need the cocaine. Tape recorder for special music. I got pulled court shirts. Get the hell out of LA for at least 48 hours. Blows my weekend. <laughs> And I'm Aaron Guillory, the star of Aaron Reports, co-star of Public Power Underground, and the soon-to-be controller for Klatska and I People's Utility District. Breaking news (laughs) on Public Power Underground. This is my last day supervising you, Aaron. And this uh, celebration, celebration for you and probably some morning morning for me, to be honest. Congratulations, Aaron. So what, what, what clip do you have for us? Give us something. I don't understand the question, and I won't respond to it. Perfect. <laughs> Love it. I am trying to channel uh, Brian Fawcett since he is out. Um, and, you know, he went with Zoolander. Luigi, can you give me a clip of Magatu from Zoolander describing Hansel? Hansel. So hot right now. Hansel. 
Okay, I think I am in uh, the mood of Brian Fawcett. So uh, I think I'm ready. Are y'all ready? We're going to start this week, like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports. All right, this is Aaron Reports, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest market indicators for September 30th, 2021. I'm Aaron Guillory, and I've got your market update for the week. April-September flows at the Dallas are expected to be at 82% of normal. The Northwest River Forecast Center has started publishing forecasts for water year 2022. And October-September flows are currently forecasted to be 93% of normal. And April-September at, is at 95. Outflow at the Dallas peaked over the past week at 126.6 KCFS on September 24th at 2100 hours. Day ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday, September 29th, was 1283. And peak outflow this past week also happened yesterday at 8 a.m. when it reached 106.9 KCFS. Spot market power in the Northwest for delivery September 30th is at $65.33 with gas at $5.45 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $27.19 and a heat rate of 11987 in term markets, bomb for mid C is now at $65.25 per megawatt hour. Mid C power per December 2021 is at $100.75, down from $106.55 last Thursday. December gas at Sumas is trading at $8.13. Wow, translating to a heat rate of $12,392. Taking a look at fish counts at Bonneville Dam, 476 steelhead passed through yesterday. Chinook and coho salmon counts continue to exceed preseason forecast, 180,527 coho and 324,969 Chinook have crossed Bonneville so far this year. Spending a beat at Bonneville's balancing authority peak load this past week was 6,449 <clears throat> On September 27th at 19.05 in the PM, during loads peak, hydro generation was at 6,776. Wind gen was at 382. Conventional units were at 1,228. And nuclear was 1,150. All units in megawatts of note. Enzo for the June, July, August period sits at negative 0.4 oceanic Nino index. The multivariate Enzo index for July through August. July, August is negative 1.34. And the SST uh, consolidated Nino forecast indicates that we're likely to remain in a La Nina through spring 2021. This week in NOAA climate forecasts, the six to 10 day outlook has temps below normal for the Western side of the region and near normal to slightly above normal for our friends east of the Cascades. Precipitation in the region is expected to be above the normal range. Their 30-day 30, 30 and 90-day reports haven't been updated since last episode. The expectation remains for temperatures in the normal range and a chance of above-average precipitation. Special thanks to Answergy for letting us use their dashboards for AN reports and to Luji for collecting and compiling the data for the report. And that's all we've got for this update. So good. I cannot believe natural gas prices are at $8 uh, in December. That is uh, very, very high and uh, surprising. Uh, I, we need to dig into a little bit more, find somebody who's an expert. So somebody out there who's a fan, friend of the underground knows somebody who knows how what to talk about when it comes to natural gas. I am not an expert. Would love to hear more about it. Give me some typewriter while I do this, Luigi. Next up is our weekly walk through Northwest Public Power and Public Power Adjacent News in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Take it away, Betsy. Thanks, Paul. There were a series of news releases out of Bonneville from the past week, which we're going to compress into one long scripted lead here. 
First, Bonneville announced the reorganization of its executive structure. The Workforce and Strategy Office will be added, bringing people-related and strategy functions in the same executive portfolio. And what better executive to leave that office than the affable Dan James, who initially joined Bonneville as deputy administrator in 2016. Can I pause there and ask, is, is Dan a friend of the podcast? Has he been on? That's a great question. It sounds like you may be friends with Dan and maybe he's not been on yet. For sure not been on. Who, who isn't friends with Dan? I thought Dan was friends with everybody. I mean, that's why he's great to leave this office, right? That's anyway. a great perspective. So we got to fix that. We got to fix yeah, that. Apparently, you know him and maybe have his email address <laughs> and you can uh, share. That was, that's yeah, enthusiast. Yeah. Is he an electric utility enthusiast? Yes. Right? Oh, oh, yes, he is. Yes, he is. Okay. He is the most enthusiastic enthusiast. All right. Okay. We'll fix that. All right. Second. Bonneville can finally stop starting and ending every conversation about participation in the Western energy imbalance market with, if we decide to join, because Bonneville is officially joining. Shocker, big surprise there. Um, on September 27th, the administrator finalized the decision with a letter to the region, closing out the process, which began in 2018. In the letter, the administrator considered whether participation was consistent with six outstanding principles. Shining examples of what participation <laughs> principles should be, really. Anyone who was part of developing those six principles really should be proud. And third, on September 29th, Bonneville announced it's committed to participate in the non-binding forward-showing phase of the Western Resource Adequacy Program. Its decision was documented in a letter to the region published on their website, which also includes a reference to the six outstanding principles carried over from the EIM process, decision process. Those principles are really excellent. You can check them out on page 11 of the letter. To learn more, check out Bonneville's newsroom or follow links in the show notes to clearing up articles on the topic. Thanks to Paul and Luigi for summarizing these articles. I, I can't. I mean, it's so nice to not have all these caveats about if we decide to join. They, they made the decisions. They made them back to back. Yes, EIM. Yes, phase 3A. Let's get this over with. Make the decision. It's great stuff. Really great. Really. The, the joke's for like three people around the principles. It's for three people. Um, I don't even know if they'll listen, but I'm here for it. Okay. Do we got some typewriter, Luigi? Yes. Doing great, Luigi. Thank you very much. All right. The Department of Defense is considering the development, design, construction, deployment, and testing of a prototype for transportable microreactors to meet its growing electricity demand. A draft environmental impact study evaluating alternatives for building and operating the microreactor was released on Friday. If approved, the microreactor, which will be able to produce one to five megawatts of power, will be built and tested at the Idaho National Laboratory. Preparing testing sites and building the reactor is expected to take three years. The Department of Defense uses 30 terawatt hours of electricity per year and more than 10 million gallons of fuel per day. With current government putting an emphasis on climate change considerations in national security and solar and wind energy being limited by location weather, the microreactor, a carbon-free energy source that would not add to their fuel consumption, is the solution they came up with. Critics believe the microreactors could cause more problems than they would solve as they become targets themselves. Thanks to today's producer, Luigi Jelin, 
uh, for summarizing the news. To learn more about the topic, you can read the article by Keith Riddler, um, which we found on IdahoNews.com. Thanks to the Energy News Digest titled U.S. Military Eyes Prototype Mobile Nuclear Reactor in Idaho. It was originally published by Associated Press on September 24th. A lot going on at the Idaho National Labs. Uh, really fun development. Also, Ludz, you're doing a great job on the learning how to write these leads. Very proud of you. We're doing great. Thank you. Thank you. It's a different skill set. You know, writing for someone else to read is a different skill set. We're, we're learning the skill set here at the underground. Okay. Typewriter. Last week, the Oregon Public Utility Commission released an additional 79 megawatts of capacity from its community solar program, as well as changes to incentivize residential and low-income subscriptions. The program capacity is earmarked mostly for PGE and Pacific Power customers and aims to offer solar to customers who are otherwise excluded from solar options for a variety of reasons. For more information, see Steve Ernst's article in Clearing Up titled, OPUC Opens Remaining Capacity in State's Community Solar Program. Special thanks to the underground's own Ian Bledsoe for summarizing the article. What are the chances <laughs> that Ian actually listens to this episode, Guillory? <laughs> I don't know, but we definitely have to give him flack, whether he listens or not. That is, that's more than two sentences. I thought, I thought there was two sentence cap. You always know, you always know when Ian writes a lead because it's so short, mad respect, (laughs) mad respect. Fawcett loves, uh, when Ian writes them. Um, and I think, uh, the, really the best way to troll Ian on this is just to provide just just effusive praise. Ian is so good at this and so good at his job. And we value Ian so much. And if he doesn't listen to this podcast, he'll have missed out on hearing all that praise. We need to make him feel valued and appreciated. Guillory, do you feel valued and appreciated? I do. Okay. Luigi, do you feel valued and appreciated? I do. Yes. Okay. Betsy, what do we got to do to make you feel valued and appreciated? You know, having me here makes me feel valued and appreciated. So thank you very much, Paul. What do you think? You're actually a PGE customer. I'm hypothesizing. What do you think of the solar program and 79 more megawatts of capacity being offered to uh, your utility? You, you as a re- I don't actually know how to phrase that. What do you think of it? <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a customer of there PGE, um, who you know, would also bear the cost through my rates, right? Is that right. what you're asking? Uh, yeah, um, or just you know, maybe a beneficiary of a program. Would you? Could you? Yeah. Well, actually, it's something I, I, I think a lot about it because I think community solar is one of the most important things we need to be doing because it allows um, everyone to participate, right, in decarbonizing the electric sector. Um, I've been, where my headspace has been over the past couple months is in, say, our public schools because that's where my kids are going. And, um, and right now, they're spending a lot of time outdoors because of COVID, but yet there is no um, covered play structures on most of the public schools in Portland. And we live here in the Pacific Northwest. And so where my mind has been going is why, why don't we do some community solar, put up covered play areas, do community solar with backup storage right there at the schools. Schools often serve as places of where communities come together during emergencies. Um, you know, we spent three days without power last winter when it was really cold and, you know, 
would that have been a different story if a few blocks away at my daughter's school, there was solar panels with backup storage? I don't know. Um, so I think it's, it's definitely something that has to be a big part of our energy mix going forward. Um, if we're really going to move forward with decarbonization and do it in a way that is equitable. Yeah. So the community solar programs, I think, are are this unique niche of program where even if you don't have a house, you can put a roof on or you don't have space right. for solar panels. You can participate mm -hmm. in these programs. Um, I, I think I, I emphatically agree with you on the value of distributed resources for resilience in the changing grid and the changing climates and changing natural disasters. Um, and I am particularly interested in the ways to structure um, like utility programs to incentivize it, to provide the proper structures for program development. These are fascinating things, uh, which we should talk about more. You're going to come back and talk about that more? Is this I would love to come back and, and talk about that. Um, yeah, you know, I think there there is a um, energy podcast, which I know you listen to, the, the Energy Gang. And yes, one of the interviews, I can't remember who it was with. But it was a fascinating interview that you might have pointed me to where the gentleman was talking about we can't address climate change unless everybody can afford it, right? Yep. So if it's just a bunch of rich people putting solar panels in their, on the tops of their homes, we can't actually decarbonize the system because not everybody can afford that. And community solar is a great tool we can use to help us get there. And I'm just going to put this in there. I'm just going to do a self-promotion. You know, outlets are electric vehicle charging infrastructure and outlets <laughs> at schools are a, another way where this community, you know, at, place where communities come together, the public schools that we all have, even in small, you know, small utilities still have schools in our service territory can be a place where you can provide these services like community solar and mm -hmm. EV public charging all you need is an outlet, just saying it's open source, plug pass. Uh, we're here for it. It's just an outlet. Okay. Uh, give us a typewriter. Let's move on to the next one. Next up, we have eWeb's power planning supervisor and staff counsel, energy Twitter personality, and a public power underground special correspondent, Matt Shrutnik, joining to report on high voltage highways and submarine supergrids. Hey, Matt, welcome back to Public Power Underground. Hey, Paul, thanks so much. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. As usual, I'm very happy to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back the third season. Uh, we're going to hit this one out of the park. You were one of the first guests. That is a badge of honor you will always wear. I am, I, I am honored uh, once again, uh, especially, you know, I, you let me come back. So it couldn't have gone that poorly the first time. I appreciate yeah. it. Always fun to have you. Always great. We want to talk about... Uh, article on like submarine, subterranean, some sort of high voltage transmission infrastructure. We saw some news uh, come through across Energy News Digest, thought it was interesting, wanted to get your take on it. So in 200 words or less, what should electric utility enthusiasts know about transcontinental supergrids, submarine? What do you got for us? Submarine supergrids. All right. Um... Uh, trying to trying to get down to that 200 word number here. So um, diving in, you got uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Um, they're they're making statements that, you know, as the world begins to phase out carbon to meet climate goals, um, we're going to have to spend at least 14 trillion dollars with a T um, by 2050 to strengthen our transmission grid. Now this this 14 trillion dollar number is only a little bit lower than um, 
what we are projected needing for new renewable generation, um, non-carbon emitting generation over that same period of time. Um, now replacing all that carbon emitting generation uh, that we're taking out of the system with renewables means uh, we got to integrate a lot of variable stuff, right? Um, wind, solar, uh, utility scale in particular, wind and solar, uh, which of course uh, you're going to cite where they're most valuable, where the wind is blowing the hardest, where the sun is shining the brightest. Um, both of those uh, places tend to not be where the load is, where the energy is actually needed. And so that means transmission investment and transmission capacity. Uh, traditionally, uh, transmitting electricity over long distances, it's prohibitively inefficient and expensive. Uh, China may have a solution to creating uh, these super grids we'd mentioned of uh, transcontinental submarine electricity superhighways, um, which is really catchy, um, that we're going to need. Um, and uh, they use what's called ultra high voltage direct current uh, transmission or UHVDC, uh, which is defined as a line that is greater than 800 kilovolts um, or KV uh, for perspective. Um, and for our listeners, the Pacific DC intertie uh, is about 500, or not about, it is 500 kV. Um, transmitting at those, uh, those, those higher numbers, uh, 800 and above results in reduced line losses um, uh, versus uh, lower voltage transmission. Um, China, for example, great example here is they actually just completed this past year an 1100 kV cable. Um, that is capable of transmitting 12 gigawatts um, or more than the entire installed generation capacity of Ireland um, from the deserts and mountains of the Xinjiang province uh, to the doorstep of uh, Shanghai, which is about 2,000 miles away uh, to the east. Um, so why does this matter? Uh, to your point, um, not only is it fun to say transcontinental submarine electricity superhighways, um, but uh, uh, one Greenpeace analyst uh, in the article, um, as they put it now, to integrate such large amounts of renewables into the grid, uh, you can talk about battery storage and other things, which of course we are doing as well. Uh, but grid transfer is the most cost-effective and efficient way of, of getting everything integrated. Um, and they added that recognizable supergrids will emerge only after 2030. So we're getting started on this, but it's still a work in progress. Uh, now, either way, as we tragically learned uh, in Texas this past February, uh, grid integration is one of the many tools we got available to us to help mitigate risk, uh, respond to a changing climate, help integrate otherwise daunting amount of renewables we're going to need to meet our climate goals. Uh, and these UHVDC lines are just one of the ways that we can make that happen. Uh, love the summary. The UHVDCs, ultra high voltage DC. There was also an article in the Financial Times because that when you start talking about 2000 miles, that seems amazing and long. Uh, it's not the only one, though. There is also a proposal in uh, uh, the UK to have one from North Africa. I think it's like 2300 miles. This one also would also be underground. Was the one in China? I assume it wasn't. I just said underground because this is the underground. It's also mm -hmm. undersea uh, submarine. Not submarine round subterranean got to make that clarification um but was the one in china uh, uh underwater was it a submarine or was it over over the desert lane? no this was uh, what is above terrainian i don't know this was above ground um the so it'd be traditional yeah conventional we'll go with that um yeah the really exciting stuff is when you talk about not just integrating uh grids as we're talking about like for example in texas um or the really long distances like we talked about in China, but what, what you're referring to, which is uh, you're connecting um, not just different aspects of a grid, like you know WEC to SPP, but different continents and different countries, um, UK to North Africa, 
um, for example, not knowing which country you're referring to, I'm just going to go with the, the North Africa designation. Um, I mean, that that just opens up an entirely new world of possibility there. And it's exciting stuff. It is very exciting stuff. For context, I looked at, so I, uh, when I, in my previous world, I used to develop in uh, wind farms and I developed a wind farm in Beatrice, Nebraska. And I was like, well, how far away is Beatrice, Nebraska from Klatskanai, Oregon? It's about 1400 miles. Um, so that would be less than what China did, right? And that is actually, it's, it's about 1700. I just uh, referenced uh, the map myself to make sure I was right, 1700 miles, which is less than what China did. And that is highway miles, which is another thing I learned on Energy Twitter, you, my conduit to Energy Twitter, um, along with our friend uh, at Clearing Up, Dan Ketpel, um, that you know one of the things that's being considered is improving the permitting process for using highway rights of way for transmission is that to you as hopeful as it is to me that these types of projects could become feasible um, not only you know money's one thing but right away is something beyond money the permitting around um getting new transmission built, I think is the, it's more difficult from my perspective than it is the financing, coming up with the money, uh, justifying the expenditure, justifying the, you know, the need. We recognize the need. We know we need more generation. We've got the resource adequacy program coming together to try and um, figure out just how much, I guess, in, in, uh, uh, to take one perspective on, on, uh, on the effort there. Um, Yes. uh, in, In, in a simple response, yes, uh, I absolutely uh, think that's exciting. I think that um, anything we can do to make that process easier and to the extent that we can actually utilize existing, not just the right of ways, but uh, paths, I don't know, highways, super railroads, highways, um, railroads, railroads yeah. along if, in, if you're, if you're actually putting them underground, recognizing that this does represent an additional cost, but um, if you're putting them along the uh, underground, along existing rights of way, um, I, I have to imagine that's going to be more effective efficient than attempting to cross tens of thousands or hundreds of people's property and getting individual permits for all of them. And uh, where I always go back to B2H, um, you know, we're, we're well over a decade. Boardman um, to we've... Hemingway, B2H, Boardman to Hemingway. I Sorry. did it for you. I got that audio for I appreciate that. Uh, it's an acronym soup in, in this world in which we live. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I always on? go back to that. Exactly. I, I know it's more than 10. I couldn't even tell you how much. I know that the, the, the estimated cost has doubled at least once. Um, and we still don't have anything yet. And so, um, and I think last I heard, and I'd ask you to correct me on this if I'm wrong um, in, uh, in post, but uh, um, I, I think Bonneville actually is selling out or buying their way out of it or, or trying to get out of it in some way, just given the difficulty associated with getting it done. Um, and so, changing yeah. the relationship to the project. Well, that's what we'll use. They're changing their relationship to the project. How about that? You like that turn of I, phrase? I think that's beautiful. That's well a done. great turn of phrase. I try. I really <laughs> do try. Uh, another interesting piece, uh, a utility dive did an article around this kind of concept of using the right of ways. So I will include that in the show notes along with the uh, link to the article you summarized for us. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for being a friend of the underground. High five, Matt. High five. We did it. Bam. Always a pleasure, buddy. Anything else Everybody. I should ask before we uh, let you go? Any promos? Uh, not not from me. Um, once again, pleasure to be a part. I look forward to uh, seeing everybody on Substack soon. Ah, exactly. Now back to the underground for more news.
Great conversation with Matt Shretnick, um, the conduit into energy Twitter for me, and hopefully a lot of y'all. Great personality, great interview. I'm ready for a typewriter, though, Luigi. Let's make it. Great job. Great typewriter. In the September 10th filing to the Public Utility Commission of Oregon, Portland General Electric sought approval by their regulators for a revision to a master service agreement with its affiliates. The revision to the master service agreement would incorporate a newly created subsidiary, Portland Renewable Resource Company, LLC. According to the filing, the new subsidiary would be used to, quote, address certain structural tax advantages encountered by utilities due to the unintended consequences of internal revenue service normalization requirements. The complication around IRS normalization requirements, as summarized by Steve Ernst in the great article on clearing up, is that they, quote, prevent the utility from passing the ITC benefit to customers in year one, the year the ITC is recognized for tax purposes, and instead requires the utility to amortize the benefit of the ITC to customers as a reduction to rate base over the life of the related asset, which according to PGE makes the utility tra- utility's traditional ownership of renewable solar resources non-competitive. For more, you can find Steve's article in issue 2023 of Clearing Up titled PGE Proposes Creation of Subsidiary to Bypass IRS Rules on ITCs. Great article. Uh, Very accounting nerd focused. (laughs) Uh, ITC stands for investment tax credit come (laughs) on i thought i was a layup i'm sorry investment tax credits this i'm so sorry a reminder (laughs) that tax policy is energy policy at least in our current dynamic give me a typewriter clip luigi In an absolutely fascinating article authored by Casey Quackenbush, which we found thanks to the Energy News Digest, Casey highlights the pioneering work being done on sustainable and resilient circumpolar architecture by the Cold Climate Housing Research Center, shortened as CCHRC, a part of the National Renewable Laboratory based at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. Casey quotes Aaron Cook, the architect who leads the Sustainable Northern Communities Program, saying, if we cannot predict what the climate is going to do, then all of our architecture should be adapted. Part of the adaptation is incorporating indigenous wisdom with 21st century technologies, according to Jack Habert, one of the founders of the CCHRC. One of the ways designers are incorporating adaptability is in foundation designs to address the thawing permafrost. The program recently designed a home with adjustable foundations normally used for things like temporary bridges. The resilient foundation can shift up to nine inches with the vulnerable permafrost. Should the permafrost deteriorate beyond habitation, strong beams can be hooked up to tow a truck to move the house, which gets to one of the most heart-wrenching lines in the article, quote, because of climate change, transience has become an essential component of building design. For more, you can read the article in the Seattle Times. The link will be in the show notes on Substack, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Really hard article to read. Really fat. Good work being done, though. Good mm-hmm. work being done by the Cold Climate Housing Research Center. Yeah, Paul, this is um, one that I, this is one of the articles that I particularly found interesting to read. I've had Um, a lot of friends, I had a friend who lived in Barrow, Alaska, um, who, you know, they did some work with the CCHRC. um, And um, another friend who um, was working on international climate change negotiations, um, the number of indigenous groups that, you know, the people that have done the least to 
contribute to climate change are the ones that are losing their homes the faster, the fastest. Um, and so it's just, it's, um, I think the quote pulling out again, the quote you mentioned about um, the foundation for everything they did being the combination of indigenous wisdom and 21st century technologies. I think that in so many aspects of as we look forward and how to deal with the climate crisis, I think that really sums up the two places we need to start is looking at the people that have lived on the in this land on the land for you know centuries or longer. Um, millennia. And millennia, exactly. Um, you know, a friend of mine she that was working in the climate change negotiations, she, she was bringing together communities up in Alaska with communities in Polynesia where the islands are being submerged and populations there are having to be relocated and the communication that has, they were in communication of like, how, how do we relocate entire populations of people that have lived there forever? Um, and also who pays for that, right? Um, you know, again, the people that did the least to cause it are now being forced to relocate and, and who bears that cost, I think is a really big question. Um, and, yeah. and where do they go as well? Um, I, you know, we have, you know, the term refugee, but I don't know if climate change refugees are something that actually, um, you know, where that is in international law. Like, what does that mean when, if you live on an island and it becomes submerged, like, where do you go? Um, so I, there's a lot of very, very interesting questions that arose for me from this article. Yeah. And another aspect of this article I found, uh, I guess, again, heartbreaking, unfortunately, grounding yourself in my reality versus the reality that's actually bearing right. this to your point, Betsy. Uh, fascinating article. It isn't all depressing. This adaptable <laughs> housing, though, is incredibly interesting. And the resilience that they show and, you know, coming up with solutions, it's great work being done. So support the great work being done. Give me a news clip, Luigi. Not a news clip. Give me a typewriter clip. <laughs> All right. In the interview, the majority of you came here to listen to the director of Bonneville's Fish and Wildlife Program, a friend of the underground, Ted Lasso fan, and Public Power Underground's deputy director of Parks and Rec, Crystal Ball, agreed to stop by and talk about fish risk in the next Bonneville contract. Hey, Crystal, welcome back to Public Power Underground. Paul, thanks for having me back. Of course, you're like one of the stars we love to have back. You got all the personality, all the jokes. You're the Leslie Nope of the public power in the Northwest, as far as I'm concerned. I love it. Deputy Director of Parks. Yes, perfect. Um, so in a lot of these post-2028 conversations, uh, smart people I talk to, which are earnest, um, really are positive about the system that we have, which is a gem of the Northwest, provides us great strategic advantage. It's low carbon free, uh, a lot of balancing capability. But when we talk about post-2028, they bring up two risks. One is fish and the other is the residential exchange. I uh, have avoided uh, learning very much about fish. I probably know something. There's, I've learned recently there's A runs and B runs, but that is new knowledge to me. Um, I, I'm getting to the point where I probably need to better understand it, specifically the fish risk post-2028. What is this risk in the new contract? And I wanted to get the expert I know, the expert I know to come talk about it. What, what is there? What, 
help me help me understand my fish risk if you if you if you are willing i am so willing but first we need to start with a very leslie note kind of approach to teaching you a little bit more about salmon in our region okay so we're gonna have like a public meeting and we're gonna have a bunch of people come talk to us about it are you gonna you're gonna leslie note me I'm going to Leslie Nope it. And really what I'm doing is like dumbing it down. Okay. That's perfect. Yes. That's for me. That's my level. Bring it down to my level, Crystal. And we're going to use our fingers to do this. So okay. five fingers. We're using our fingers on an audio uh, format. There is on YouTube. So if you're like, there's fingers up right now. Got it. Yes. But everyone can visualize their own fingers. So five species of salmon. Okay. Right. And the way you remember them is pink for your pinky. Okay. Then you have your ring finger. So silver for um, your ring finger. And a silver salmon is also known as a coho salmon. Oh, okay. And then, you know, you got your tall man, your really big fish. So that's the king salmon, also known as Chinook salmon. Okay. All right. So we're talking about five species. We've covered three pink for your pinky. Silver. You're you're telling me pink salmon is a type of salmon. You're telling me this is a thing. I did not know this. So, okay. We don't, we don't see a lot of it in the Columbia river. That's why you don't know. Okay. Okay. But I knew about coho. I've heard about King. Okay. King Chinook. That's the big fish. Okay. All right. Okay. And then for your pointer finger, like sock you in the eye for sock eye. Okay. Okay. (laughs) And then for your thumb, chum, chum, chum. Okay. And that's a different species. It's just not small salmon. I thought chum was like, was like just a, just small, like the baby salmon. That's not baby salmon. No, it's five species of salmon. Chum is a big fish, but um, what I know about chum is when they get into freshwater, um, they've started to really deteriorate. Um, And so chum is a fish you want to catch in the ocean. Okay. So. Other questions I have now. Uh, the other, like sturgeon are not a salmon. They are not. Okay. Okay. Are salmon, are all salmon, like some, there's like a bass or something and the difference is salmon return, they're anadromous. So they go to the ocean and back. There's some, like some type of fish. I talk about this with people all the time. I don't know what type of fish. So there's like a freshwater fish is the same thing as a salmon, but it goes to the, salmon's go to the ocean. Is this a thing or is this made up? No, you you've got it. What's um, the type of fish? Is it bass? Rainbow oh, trout. Rainbow trout. rainbow trout. Rainbow trout. Are rainbow trout just uh, the salmon that don't go to the ocean? Or is this made I, up? <laughs> oh, you're all over the place here. I am. Um, trout do not go to the ocean with the exception of steelhead. Okay. Okay. So, this, were you, we, okay. so are steelhead a type of salmon? Oh, man, I'm not a biologist. Uh, What I know is that uh, steelhead are a type of trout and trout are freshwater with the exception of the steelhead. And the steelhead makes a journey to the ocean. It gets really big in the ocean and then it comes back to the freshwater. And what a trout, what a steelhead can do is lay eggs and then go back to the ocean and come back once more. What a salmon does is a salmon born in freshwater migrates to the ocean, grows up in the ocean, comes back big, lays eggs, dies. Trout can return to the ocean. They're that hardy. 
Okay. Okay. Steelhead. Steelhead can return to the ocean. They're that hardy. Okay. But steelhead was not one of the five I learned about. No, it's a trout. So you're telling me that steelhead aren't salmon. Steelhead are trout. And trout are different than salmon. These are different um, things. Holy yeah, cow. Only five species of salmon in our um, okay. in the region. Don't worry about too much about it. A lot of this is going to get edited out. But yeah. I've learned something. There are five types of salmon. Steelhead are trout. Are trout. Yes. Also an adramus. Steelhead or anadromous. Also eligible for the belt. Salmon and, and steelhead are both anadromous. Yes. Okay. And which of these are endangered? Are all, of, are all these types of salmon and steelhead endangered? Or is it just? No, not on pink. Um, yes, on chum. Um, and then the other three, uh, yes. So okay. I think my point in showing you like the five species of salmon is how complicated it is. Oh man, this um, is really, I learned a bunch. Oh, good, good. That's why we have this. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm trying to explain to our leadership when um, people are out fishing, um, why there are some poor returns. Like they're like, what well, people are catching steelhead and salmon. And I say, yes, they are catching coho because coho have a really great year right now. We're seeing returns from coho that are you know better than they were last year, better than they were the year before. Um, but sockeye, um, and we saw some really warm temperatures, and um, we uh, worked with ODF or um, sorry, we worked with Idaho Department of Fish and Game to trap and haul sockeye up to um, Idaho uh, because they were not going to make that arduous journey. Um, water was too warm. So I call all these things salmon, but they have different returns, like these different things, coho yes. and chum and I can't remember it. Like sockeye. That's I got it. Sockeye. Got it. Okay. Yep. Sockeye. They have yep. different behaviors and have different yes. returns every year. Okay. Yes. Okay. But you just touched on a topic I'm very curious about because when we think about post-2028 conversations, you know, we just talked about how in different temperatures, ocean temperatures and water temperatures in the river, you can have different impacts on these different species of salmon. So as we, you know, as we get further in time, our baked in climate change is happening and we expect warming waters and warming rivers. Do, are the, am I compounding my fish risk um, the, the more, time goes on and is this going to be a risk that i should be very concerned about after 2028 and what type of fish risk should i be concerned about post 2028 paul you had me on um with matt and right. uh you know what i talked to matt about was the foundation for bonneville's fish and wildlife mitigation program um and there's two things there's the Northwest Power Act passed in 1980 and um, the Endangered Species Act. Um, under the Northwest Power Act, the council, Northwest Power and Conservation Council, um, plans a program and Bonneville's responsibility is to implement projects consistent with the council's program. Okay. And then under the Endangered Species Act, Bonneville makes uh, commitments uh, to um, measures 
um, in order to mitigate the impacts of our operations. And those commitments are operational commitments as well as non-operational commitments. Those non-operational commitments are offsite mitigation projects that the Fish and Wildlife Program funds. And so we have you know, a foundation for this program. We have um, you know, a structure, uh, a governance structure for this program. Um, and those legal underpinnings are the Northwest Power Act and the Endangered Species Act. And we make commitments to mitigate for the impact. Um, so when I think about the risk post 2028, I know that we will be operating under um, the Endangered Species Act. And yep. we have just um, consulted with uh, US Fish Wildlife Service and uh, NOAA on our um, operations. Um, we have a biop, uh, 2020 biop. It's a 15 year biop. Um, and we uh, have operations uh, measures and non-operational measures that we have committed to implement. So we have that structure for that for the next 15 years. Okay. And then we also have the Northwest Power Act Council's program, and it was just amended in 2020. Um, and you know, like the power plan, the council will um, review its fish and wildlife plan too. Um, and so we have governance structure uh, for that, uh, for the program, uh, the projects that the Fish and Wildlife Program, Bonneville's Fish and Wildlife Program funds are reviewed by independent scientists and recommended by the council. So there's governance structure. And when I think about the implementation of Fish and Wildlife Program post-2028, that governance structure is going to exist. And Bonneville is responsible for mitigating for the negative impacts of the federal system. What we do will contribute to recovery of the species in our region, but our mitigation responsibility is for those impacts at the dams. And we meet those impacts, uh, or we mitigate those impacts through operational um, changes, both structural and operational, and for offsite mitigation for you know, what you can't do at the dams, you might improve conditions for fish with offsite mitigation. And offsite mitigation, three areas, Habitat restoration, that's where we spend the most money. Okay. Hatchery production, so you know, um, growing more fish and research monitoring and evaluation to really assess whether the work that we're doing is making an impact and whether we need to change um, those projects uh, to increase our impact. So you mentioned uh, that some of this, the governance will be in place that continues after the new contract. And that mitigates some risk because we at least know the structure under which any new programs would be implemented. Yeah. Uh, that's helpful. And the, But you also mentioned that some of these programs are already part of a plan that was is going to be going into the post-2028 yes. construct, which is uh, for 15 years from now. So yes. in some ways, we know some of these mitigation programs that will be part of our next contract. How much and what do you think, uh, like, is there incremental risk, cost risk of those programs as more occurs? What is the process for like revising, adding new programs and managing those programs? Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked about that. Um, 
I am managing Fish and Wildlife Program to budget. That budget uh, for fiscal year 2022 is $247 million. It's a lot of money. That covers both our mitigation responsibilities under the Northwest Power Act and our responsibilities under the Endangered Species Act. You know, none of that right now is being challenged. Okay. What's being challenged are the operations and specifically the operations of four lower Snake River projects. That's a bigger risk than whether there's going to be pressure to fund more offsite mitigation protection. So am I interpreting you right that you think the the cost pressures for a power customer who has, you know, under if if we take on the contract, we take on cost responsibility for Bonneville's programs. That that cost pressure is not the program elements, offsite program elements. It's mainly operational. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes. I think you're and, and a good you summary have, right there. And you have confidence in that because we already know the governance and we have some of these programs uh, that are already defined under the biological assessment opinion. What's that term again? <laughs> the biological opinion. Okay. That's uh, what we receive after consulting with uh, U.S. Fish Wildlife Service and um, NOAA um, over the operation of the federal projects. So we so, mitigate the impact and we get a biological opinion from our regulators, U.S. Fish Wildlife Service and NOAA. And so in a lot of ways, you know what programs you're going to have to implement. Yes. Even in two, through, so it's 15 years, it's 2021 to so like 2036. Yeah. You at least know what the programs, costs could change because, you know, cost change escalation happens and and you know that it sounds like you're mitigating these known things though it's like i'm gonna do habitat restoration i'm gonna remember these things eventually you're gonna have to come back on we're gonna have to talk about this again but it sounds like they're fairly defined things that are infrastructure projects and we know generally we can estimate the construction costs of doing certain things but at least the programs are defined in that post 2028 the first part of a contract yeah. Yeah. Right. Am I getting this right? You are getting it, at least the way I see it. And, you know, I talked to the administrator this morning about it. Um, I took him out to Savi Island and we looked at um, two uh, sites there where we have um, protected habitat and we are in the process of restoring some habitat right here um, close to BPA headquarters on Savi Island. In the estuary, estuary is so important because it's where um, juvenile salmon grow bigger and stronger. And um, the bigger that and stronger they can be, the more likely they are to survive in the ocean. So we've done some protection of habitat uh, there at Savi Island, and we have restored habitat in the estuary uh, to create a good space for juvenile salmon. And I took the administrator out there this morning in the rain. Um, but we were out there with our project sponsor um, uh, and we got to see some projects on the ground. I think it's important for him to understand. And we talked a little bit about you know, the risk um, post-2028 and he agrees with me, operational. Um, and he's very focused on how do we bring some certainty to this very uncertain issue right now? 
So as I think about like cost structures of a power contract, you know, if it's escalation driven, if it's cost of goods and services driven, like an infrastructure project, that's a different risk than if there is some more like exponential growth risk of cost. So it seems like the operational side, is that even exponential? And who do you think I should talk to about the operational risk? Because I think I have a better understanding now, not perfect. I learned about the difference between apparently salmon and steelhead and trout. There's a difference there. Learned all about it. Um, <laughs> But there, the operational risk seems like maybe it is the more uh, uh, pressing issue and more concerning area post 2028. Uh, you can give me a name offline or is there somebody I already think about would be a good uh, person? Well, there's people about. at Bonneville that think about this all the time. Um, and uh, my coworkers in uh, power supply uh, are thinking about um, operations, generation, um, post 2028. Uh, you know, Kieran Connolly is currently the VP of Generation Supply, um, but uh, there's a lot of a lot of other people there. And maybe <laughs> we can make Kieran a friend of the underground. Uh, I think we could. I mean, we especially can... as he, you know, transition out of that role. Yeah, he's a uh, pretty smart that. guy. Seems like a very smart human person. I don't think I've ever had a conversation with him, but I've been in a lot of meetings where he's presented. Always impressed. So. I don't know if you can hook me up, Crystal. We're friends. Uh, he can. We be are friends in the underground. Yeah, this is how it works. It's a network. It is a network. Love it. Love this is a great conversation. Uh, you did not disappoint, uh, and I'm hoping you can come back. You know, we don't always have to talk about fish. We can talk about something else if you want to. <laughs> fish and Ted Lasso. Oh, and Leslie Nope. So thanks for nope. letting me do that. Leslie Nope, kind of five species of salmon. Hopefully, your listeners will uh, know something. I'm sure you know your colleagues who like fish. Like I listened to that conversation. Was it Ian? Who is it? The, that's the fisherman. Brian Fawcett is the fisher. Brian. Okay. So A runs, B runs. There's no C runs, uh, but he knows all <laughs> about it. Knows when you increase your projected survival rates. He is all over it. Uh, it's great to have him uh, to be able to provide that insight for sure. Yeah, I know. And he added fish counts. Uh, yeah, to, yeah, the fish counts. I, I loved that. I should have probably followed up with Brian when he did that just to say thank you. I mean, that, you know, ratepayers should have that information. They pay for that collection of that data that, you know, the re whole region uses. Um, so I'm glad that he's paying attention to fish counts. I'm glad you're reporting it. It's really important to know, you know, what is our, what's the result of our effort? Yeah, uh, agreed. And it's great to have uh, it's great to have you on. Great to have you tracking it. Great to have your insights into this whole thing. I'm glad to have the expert. I don't have to be an expert if I have friends with experts. It's like friends with a boat, you know? It's also great to have a friend with a boat. Great to have a friend who's an expert. Thank you. Yeah. Please come back. Absolutely. Okay. Now back to the underground for news. It was an absolutely great conversation with Crystal Ball. Thank you to Crystal for coming on. I'm very confident she will listen because she'll want to make sure uh, I edited out the parts that she said I should edit. And she'll wonder <laughs> if I edited out the parts of myself that she thought was funny that uh, uh, I did edit, but I, she probably wishes I didn't. Great conversation. I just wanted to highlight one thing. Uh, and that is a point she made that resonated with me. And I think it's important for us as preference customers to, to remind ourselves the fish program costs aren't, are unlikely to be the things that we should focus on as fish risk in the next contract. 
um, the way she articulated the distinctions between fish program costs and operational costs and her and as she mentioned in the interview her and john hairston's opinion that it is not fish program costs it is operational costs that are the greatest risks in that post 2028 contract um i think is is the in area of interest i'm really hoping we can get kiernan Connolly on uh to talk about that operational risk because i have like in my head this is unbounded risk um but i'm suspicious if you know the operations of the system there is a way to bound even the operational risk um and how to do that effectively i think is incredibly important kiernan please come on uh, are you a friend of kiernan betsy um i know kiernan and i think he would be fabulous to have on here and address that topic i um i always appreciate someone that is as smart as he is to be able to come in and explain things in terms that even someone like I can understand, you know, that I am able to understand when he, when he explains operations, he does it in such a way that even the non-engineers among us to, can, can see. So. The executive producer is coming out of you. That is, in fact, the heart <laughs> of Public Power Underground, right? We're trying to get these really smart experts to bring it down to a level that even mm -hmm. I can understand. It's perfect. Thank you. It's, yeah, this is it. This is the brand. You're right on brand. Okay, let's get some typewriter, Luigi. And lastly, in a dispatch from hashtag energy Twitter. I'm saying that right, right? I feel, I feel yeah. old. Wait, I, uh, so you didn't listen to last week's episode, which is fine. I support that. You've been very busy, uh, but Karen did clarify it is the correct way to say it. Hashtag okay. Energy Twitter. That is correct. Okay. Thank you, Karen. Yep. Thank star. You. Star. Okay. Jamie Tart of Public Power. <laughs> Just a star of the underground. <laughs> I can now say hashtag with confidence. Yep. And lastly, in a dispatch from hashtag Energy Twitter that we couldn't let pass by, Dolly Parton, quote, tweeted a Ted Lasso quote tweet of FERC Commissioner Neil Chatterjee what is that? in a tweet where he channeled Ted Lasso's positivity on a flight. The Ted Lasso quote tweet got a reply tweet highlighting hashtag hot FERC summer by Rep Sean Caston, whose hot FERC summer speeches in Congress have been an absolute hot mess on hashtag energy Twitter all summer. What a way, what to, end a way it. to end it. What a way to end it. That was perfect. Oh, that was so good. That was so good. Uh, give us give us a typewriter out, Luigi. Okay, that's all the news we're covering this week. Send us any news, questions, opinions, or corrections to me on Twitter at a power manager. Or if you're a friend of the underground, send any of us a note, including Betsy, executive producer of Public Power Underground. Thank you for joining us, Betsy. Did did you end up feeling valued and appreciated? I feel very valued and appreciated. Can I take a minute to can I express value and appreciation to another friend of the podcast? Absolutely. So, you know, so even though it hasn't barely came up, Ted Lasso, I thought, what is the most important thing I have to do to prepare to be on this podcast? And I had not seen any of season two of Ted Lasso. I hadn't, you know, I have a child that doesn't go to bed till 1030 at night. What do you do? Right. So this weekend, Megan Stratman came over, took my children for an entire Sunday afternoon so that my husband and I could binge watch Ted Lasso. So I just think that, you know, Megan Stratman needs some appreciation here too, because I couldn't be here without her.
Thank you, Megan. Great, great friend of the underground, the special, anything she wants to talk about correspondent. Um, eventually, we'll get her back on once PGE agrees to let her appear on Public Power <laughs> Underground. Um, but, and you're welcome. You're welcome. You know, you didn't need the information. We didn't need to get you all stressed out about preparing for this. But out of this, you did get to watch and catch up on season two with your husband. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. How about you, Gillary? Are you still feeling valued and appreciated? Very, very your, valued and appreciated. Your last day, I'm last day where I'm your supervisor. Uh, I'm very happy for you. It's going to be great. New controller for Klatskin IPUD taking over the finance department. <laughs> well done. Congratulations. Uh, I am all. sad that, you know, you're still in the team. We're still they're, they're down the hall. I'm not as sad at all. Take that away. It's great. All un, unbridled joy. <laughs> There's a little sadness. There's a little sadness. It's change. It's transition. How about you, Luigi? <laughs> Do you have any do you have any uh any sound clips for us for give us some applause let's give us some applause okay i got it that applause is for you luigi it's for you oh, I feel valued you. And appreciated. <laughs> okay start that theme music down low i'm gonna read us out in hard times to bring us our next episode will be recorded october 11th 2021 and published sometime after that it'll be another version of a live show but we aren't sure what type of a live show version it'll be yet we're uh learning and evolving as always with public power underground we also expect to break some news in the next episode including some exciting news about the sustainability and new normal of public power underground to make sure you don't miss it or any other episode you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content and links to the news articles we chatted about on Substack at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. You can just search for Public Power Underground. I'm pretty sure we're in the Google algorithm at this point because we have so many friends of the underground. Yay us. Um, you can also subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app. Luigi, can we send uh, end with a thank you and good night from the marvelous Mrs. Maisel? Really make it feel good. Absolutely. Great audience, ladies and gentlemen. That's it for me. My name is Mrs. Maisel. Thank you and good night that's all for this week thanks for tuning in public power underground is northwest public power news from a part of portman's perspective presented for entertainment purposes it's written edited and produced by the power department and friends of the power department the views expressed here are our own and not the official views of Klatskin IPUD, nor of any person or organization affiliated or doing business with Klatskin IPD, nor the organization, a guest also appearing on Public Power Underground. Neither Klatskin IPD nor those appearing on Public Power Underground generate, generate ad revenue from the episodes. Make Betsy, Aaron, Matt, Crystal, and me, Luigi, feel better about our participation in this week's episode by sending us a note, text, or email with a thumbs up telling us how much you enjoyed it. Do it for us, do it for them, and do it to make other people feel valued and appreciated. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch.